Holy Spirit, we are absolutely dependent on you to teach us truth. Uh, Jesus, you promised us that you would send the Spirit, and the Spirit would teach us things of the truth, would point to the things of Jesus Christ. And so I pray right now that you would teach us that which is true. In your name we pray. Amen. So, if our world is so messed up, as we talked about last week, then again the question is, what is the solution? I mean, this world is full of problems and sin, and as a result, this world is damaged. Uh, this world is, is, is really messed up. I mean, nothing is perfect. Everybody is, is, uh, is sinner, so everything's damaged. So what is the solution to the problems that we face in our world, and particularly the sin problem uh, that, that is there? You know, there are a lot of different approaches as to how to handle the, the problems in our world today. And the, the truth of the matter is, just about all the solutions that are offered out there are what I would call band-aids. They just don't go deep enough below the surface to really do much good. Uh, the fact is that we've got to get below the surface of these problems to really fix them. Um, you know that if you've got weeds in your lawn, one of the easiest solutions to taking care of the weeds is to mow the lawn, right? I mean, you mow it and it looks beautiful. But within a few days, what happens? The weeds grow faster than the grass. And suddenly there they are again. And you can mow them again and it looks great. But a few days later, there they come again, okay? The only solution to that is to what? Pull the weeds out by their root. And so if we're going to address the problems that are facing our world, we've got to get below the surface. We've got to get to what I would call the root of the problem. Uh, because if you just cut the tops off, they're going to grow back, okay? So a lot of the problems that you and I encounter in life, in our careers, in our families, uh, in our nation, in our world for that matter, we tend to treat at just a surface level. All we're doing is cutting the tops off. We're not getting to the root of the problem. Uh, there are a number of different approaches. Let me mention seven approaches to dealing with the problems of this world. Number one would be what I would call the political approach. The political approach. You know, just solve the world's problems by passing laws and enacting policies. It's, it's really solution by politics, if you want to call it that. And the truth is that there are a lot of people who genuinely trust government, not God, but they trust government to solve all the problems in our world. You know, all we need is just better laws. I would call that salvation by legislation. The problem is, folks, you can't force anyone to change. Uh, you can write all the laws in the world, but a law has never changed anybody, anywhere, at any time. Uh, the fact of the matter is, it may cause you to conform in behavior to the law, but it doesn't change your belief, your attitude, your character, your prejudice. It doesn't do that. And so you have to deal with something deeper than that. Not just on service level. You've got to have something deeper. So salvation by legislation is is you know, it, it's really not the ultimate answer. The second idea is as a educational approach. Educational approach. They say that the basis of all the problems in the world is just ignorance. And if we can just get everybody educated, this world will be a better place. Now, I believe education is important. I mean, I got three degrees. I, I believe it's important. But salvation by education is not the answer. I mean, think about it. There are a lot of terrorists and, and uh, tyrants out there and criminals and, and dictators who have lots of education. But education can't change your character. It's, it's really not getting to the root. A third solution that, that is proposed out there is that of the financial approach. Uh, you know, there are those people who see everything in the world as in economic terms. Uh, and, you know, that every problem out there has an economic solution. And, of course, economics does matter, but it's a surface issue. It doesn't deal with the root of human behavior. Uh, the financial approach says, man, if we can just get everybody to earn more money, everything will be well. I would call this salvation by compensation, okay? Um, if we can just get everybody wealthier. 
And yet you and I know as Christians, yeah, we want to eliminate poverty. But we also know that throwing money after things doesn't solve the root problem. It doesn't solve, you know, having a lot of money hasn't solved your problems, has it? And so we need to learn that that doesn't work. Another approach is what I would call the psychological approach. You know, what we need to do is just help people to change the way that they're think the, the way that they're feeling. Uh, we need to help them, you know, deal with their self-esteem issues and deal with their past and deal with their relationships. If we can just help people to get through all of that, life's going to be better. Just boost their self-esteem uh, and everything's going to work out fine. You know, all we need to do is hire more social workers and fewer police and the world's going to be a better place. That's salvation by what I call actualization. Salvation by actualization. If we just get the stress out of everybody's life, then life would be so much better. But folks, you and I were made for far more than stress-free living. We were not made just for happiness. No, we were created by God and we were created for God. And until we understand that, life isn't going to make sense. A fifth approach would be the sociological approach to the world's problems. Uh, let's just change the social structures in our world. And if we do, then everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be okay. It's interesting, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, there were a lot of people who thought that was the solution, the sociological uh, approach. <clears throat> and there were people who believed, and, and there were Christians among them, if we could just change the social structure of society, everything was going to turn out all right. But at the end of the 20th century, after we had been through two world wars and numerous other wars, the Holocaust, six million Jews who were put to death, and all the other atrocities that happened in the 20th century, people came to the conclusion that no, the sociological approach is not going to work. People are, it, are just reordering society is not going to be the solution. It's not going to work. There's a deeper issue there. That was the approach of salvation by association. And then finally, is, or the sixth point is the biological approach. We're just going to focus on the body. And if we could create the perfect body, then it would solve everybody's dilemma. And, you know, there's a lot of exciting breakthroughs in science today, in medicine and science, biotechnology. And uh, it's this idea that the, the goal is, you know, a pill, a treatment, a procedure will solve everybody's problems. That's what I would call salvation by medication. Each of those solutions that I just went through and went through very quickly on you really has an important role, but folks, they don't get to the root of the problem uh, of this planet. They don't deal with the issue directly. The bottom line is this, folks. You have to change hearts for change to occur. Uh, if there's going to be any long-term change, it starts in the heart. And so the biblical approach, which is the seventh approach, is God's way. It's changing the heart. I call this salvation by transformation because God specializes in that. Transforming prejudiced people into loving people. Transforming uh, hateful people into kind people. Self-centered people into unselfish people. Salvation by transformation. And it starts in the heart. The writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. You see, the heart is the root, and each of these other things never get to the root of the problem. They never attack the root, because the heart is the root of the problem. The wellspring of your life, the, the writer of Proverbs says, is your heart. It's your character. And when you look at the world... The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. People's hearts are wrong. And so only changed hearts can change the world. And society is not going to change until hearts change. But here's the problem. We live in a fallen planet. We live in a broken planet. And as a result, we all have heart disease. Now, I'm not talking about physical heart disease. I'm talking about spiritual heart disease. And I want this morning for us to look at five common universal heart diseases that are out there. <clears throat> Number one is guilt. Guilt. You know, the reason there is guilt is that nobody is perfect. We all blow it. 
So we all walk around with this sense of guilt in our life. And you know what? It's impossible to be happy and guilty at the same time. It's impossible to feel good about yourself and bad about yourself at the same time. Uh, listen to this paraphrase of, the, of Psalm 40, verse 12 from the message paraphrase. He says, I was so swamped by guilt, I couldn't see my way clear. More guilt in my heart than hair on my head. So heavy the guilt, my heart gave out. So you can't feel, have, feel good and have guilt in your heart at the very same time. So the result of that is there are a lot of people in the world today who feel worthless because of guilt. A second heart problem, heart disease that our world has is that of compulsion. Folks, there are things in your life that you know are bad for you and yet you end up doing them, right? And then there are things that you know are good and you don't do them. I mean, uh, and you know, you may not call these addictions, but they really are that because you've got some compulsions in our lives that lead us to act in unhealthy ways that really uh, are self-defeating, ways that just totally defeat us uh, every time we turn around. You act in ways that defeat relationships, that defeat your health, that defeat your happiness. And as a result, you know, we're saying to ourselves, you know what, I'd really like to change, but I just can't change. There are a lot of things that I'd like to do, but somehow I just can't bring myself to do those kinds of things. So, so the bottom line is, there are right things to do and there are wrong things to do, and we're, we're always doing the opposite of what we should be doing. And so we, we feel you know, powerless to change. So think about it. We feel worthless because of guilt, and we feel powerless because of these compulsions in our life. Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul really spoke exactly what I'm talking about here. He says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And he's talking about compulsions there. The third heart disease in our world today is that of alienation. Alienation. That means I feel dis disconnected. And there's a lot of people in our world who feel disconnected. They feel disconnected from God. They feel disconnected from others. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a parent. They feel disconnected. Um, that's part of the cause of sin and evil in our world. It brings about disconnection. It brings about alienation. It, it causes the damage to relationships. And so as a result of this alienation in heart, a lot of people out there are experiencing loneliness. Uh, loneliness that says, you know, I just can't get close to anybody. Um, you know, most people in our world have never experienced real, honest-to-goodness, intimate relationship, soul-to-soul -soul and heart-to-heart -heart companionship. And so alienation is present in our world, and it causes loneliness. It's a problem of the heart. The fifth heart disease, or the fourth heart disease is that of confusion. Um, and confusion in our hearts just creates aimlessness in life. In other words, I don't know where I am. I don't know where I came from. I don't know where I'm going. I'm just lost. You know, there's a lot of people out there who are just drifting through life. There's no goal. There's no purpose. There's no meaning in their life. They're just drifting. Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 1 in verse 21. He says, and he's talking about those who refuse to acknowledge God. He says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. What you and I need to, who are believers, need to realize is that the longer we're followers of Jesus Christ, the easier it begins to, it is to forget what it felt like when we were without Christ. Uh, we have, we've forgotten what it's like to get up in the morning and say, is this all there is to life? We've forgotten what it feels like to be aimless and purposeless in life. Uh, there is a sense of aimlessness of people all around us because they have a confusion in their heart. That's, that's part of the heart disease that's present in our world. And then number five is worry. And you know what? Worry is a universal heart disease. Uh, 
People worry in every single culture, whether you realize it or not, okay? And when you worry, the outward visible symptom of worry is restlessness. When you're worrying, you feel restless, you feel anxious. And you can't be happy and worried at the same time, folks. So it weighs you down and it carries with it that sense of restlessness that's out there. Now, as we look at these heart diseases, and you look at how the world has attempted to resolve them, folks, it's not a pretty picture. It really isn't making any headway and solving the dilemmas of our world. But I got some good news for you. You know what? Jesus Christ is in the heart transplant business. Isn't that great? Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19, God says, And I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take away that stony, stubborn heart and give them a tender, responsive heart. You see, Jesus Christ changes hearts. Uh, he replaces a heart that's filled with guilt and worry and, and, and uh, loneliness and, and alienation and compulsion and compu- confusion with a brand new heart. He replaces those feelings of worthlessness and powerlessness and loneliness and aimlessness and and restlessness. And how does he do that? That's what we're going to look at this morning. If I were to take a survey and I were to ask, what is the most visible symbol in the world today? What what might you say? Uh, Some people might say, well, it's that Starbucks logo. It's everywhere, which it really is everywhere, isn't it? I mean, in fact, when Jan and I were in China a number of years ago, we found a Starbucks in Beijing, China. Can you believe that? Uh, Or some people would say, you know, it's the McDonald arches. They're literally everywhere. I've eaten at McDonald's in Denmark. I've eaten in Germany. I've eaten in France. They're everywhere, okay? Or you might say Coca-Cola. I believe Coca-Cola is maybe found in almost every country of the world. And you think, man, that's a recognizable symbol, okay? But if those are the things you pick, you're wrong. You know what the most recognizable symbol in the world is? It's the Christian cross. It's on millions of buildings and 10 millions of cemeteries. And millions of people wear it on a chain around their neck. And and you ask the question, so what's this deal about the cross? Why is it so popular? Why is it so important that people, I mean, think about it. This horrible instrument of death, and you're wearing it on a chain around your neck. I mean, we don't go around wearing miniature guillotines or miniature gallows around our neck. Why would we, why would we wear a cross? Why would we as Christians say this is a symbol of hope? Um, what's the big deal about the cross? It's because on that cross, Jesus solved these five biggest problems that you and I face in our life. It's not only the solution to those problems of the heart, but it's really the solution to all the problems that we face in our world. It's the solution to the root cause of every single difficulty we have on this planet. So I want us to look real quickly at five benefits of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Uh, And you know what? If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you need, to, you need to really remember these five benefits. Because somebody's going to ask you one day, hey, how do I handle worry in my life? How do I handle loneliness? How do I handle the, the sense of alienation that I have? What's the cross all about? Why did Jesus die on the cross? You need to be able to give five reasons with these five answers. So number one, <clears throat> the first benefit that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ is the word replacement. Replacement. That is, He took my punishment. See, on the cross, Jesus took the punishment that I should have received. He was my replacement. He was my substitute. Romans chapter 3, the very first part of verse 25 says, For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. For whose sins? For our sins. He was... He, he was the sacrifice for our sins. Galatians 3.13. But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. What's the curse pronounced by the law? The soul that sins, it shall die. So Christ has rescued us from that curse 
When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus says, I'll be your substitute. I'll be your replacement. Now, now think about this. <clears throat> you know, when you go out and you break a human law, you have to pay a human penalty, right? If, if You know, you go out from here and you, you get going really, really fast and the police pull you over, what generally happens? You get a ticket, right? You break a human law, you've got to pay a human penalty. You go and you rob somebody, you're probably going to serve some time in jail for that. So you break a human law, you have a human penalty. Folks, you break God's law, you have to pay God's penalty. And what is the penalty? The wages of sin is death. Folks, that means that I deserve to die. I deserve, somebody's got to pay for that. Either I pay for it or somebody else pays for it. And here's the good news. Somebody has already paid for the penalty for your sins, for my sins. Jesus says, I will do it. I will pay the penalty for Sam Crouch's sins, past, present, and future. And he says the same thing to you as well. I'll pay the penalty for your sin. You don't have to pay it. Uh, you have a substitute. You have a replacement. Everything that you have ever done wrong has already been paid for. Everything that you'll ever do wrong has already been paid for. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10 says, For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. That means He did it once for all and it was good for all of time. He did it once. So it's finished. It's, nobody else has to deal with it. Folks, He was nailed to the cross so that you can stop nailing yourself to the cross for all the things that you're doing wrong. Um, he said, I have come to take away the guilt for all the wrong that you've done in your life. He took care of that first heart issue that we're facing. He says, I can get rid of it all and, and you don't have to feel guilty because I have paid for all of it. And He did this because He loves you. He created you, He loves you, and He wants you to have a relationship with Him. Listen to what God said through Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus went to the cross. He's talking about Jesus, and it says, It was our weakness that He carried. It was our sorrow that weighed Him down. He was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped, and we were healed. All of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on Him the guilt and sins of us all. Jesus is our substitute. He's our replacement. Now, let me tell you why that's good news, okay? Do you realize that most of the people in this world are dying? They're dying to hear three words. You are forgiven. Those are the most important words in the world. You know, back when Jan and I went to, to China uh, some 15, 16 years ago, one of the things that absolutely amazed us was that there were quite a few people in China who had actually seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And one of the things that they were asking our group over and over and over again, why did Jesus say, Father, forgive them? Why did he say that? And when we explained to them the forgiveness of God, they were absolutely amazed and they wanted to talk over and over and over again about forgiveness. You see, they were hungry to hear those words, you are forgiven. People are dying to hear those words. I want you to know that, that you are forgiven. So when you accept Christ, what He has done for you on the cross as your substitute, as your, as your replacement, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, He says to you, you are forgiven. Now why do we need that? We need that because guilt is the most paralyzing emotion in life. Um, guilt, you know, what we've done to others, resentment, what they have done toward us. Uh, and so guilt and, and resentment have such a physiological impact on our, on our bodies. Folks, you and I were not made to walk around carrying guilt in our life. God says, I don't want you to live that way. No, I want you to know that you are forgiven. Now, how does Jesus forgive us? He forgives us completely, instantly, instantly. 
and freely. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a deal. Did you catch that? Here is God, and He takes the sinless Jesus Christ, and He takes all the dirt, all the filth, all the garbage of our lives, and He dumps them on Jesus Christ. And then He says to you, and I'm going to take all of Jesus' goodness, and I'm going to pour it into your life. Folks, that is the greatest exchange that has happened in the history of the world. My sin for His righteousness. That's why the Bible says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, you know, when God looks down on you as after you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he, he simply says, I don't condemn you. There is no condemnation. I don't care what you've done. There is no condemnation. I don't condemn you. Why? Because that sin was placed on Jesus Christ. The second benefit is the word redemption. That is, he bought my freedom. This Greek word for redemption is a word that comes out of the slave market. It means to, to buy a slave at, 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 the market, at the marketplace. And you know what? In a spiritual sense, you and I are slaves to sin. Um, and uh, until Jesus purchased us out of that slave market and, and set us free, set us free from sin's bondage. First uh, Timothy 2.6 says, He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Now, you know, you might say, well, I'm not a slave, but listen to what the Bible says, 2 Peter 2.19. You are a slave to whatever controls you. You know, <clears throat> based on that definition alone, all of us are slaves to something. You know what? You could be a slave to your, you know, the approval of your friends. You can be a, a, a slave to your past. You can be a slave to your schedule. You can be a slave to the opinion of, of other people and so forth, to memories, to guilt, uh, to your schedule. I, I don't know what it is. You fill in the blanks of what you're a slave to. But what we're talking about is that heart problem of compulsion. And Jesus came to release you from that slavery. First uh, Corinthians seven twenty three in the uh, the living uh, excuse me the uh, today's English version says God bought you for a price so don't become slaves to other people to people see when Jesus died on the cross he set us free from slavery so here's the question what is it that you're enslaved to your past your habits living for the approval of other people. Your schedule, whatever it is. What is it that has enslaved you? I don't know what controls you or enslaves you, but I do know this. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, He died to set you free. He was willing to pay the highest price necessary to win your freedom. You know, the price for freedom, I mean, that freedom is a free gift that He gives to you and to me. And that price is too high for you and I to try to earn it on ourselves. Tragically, a lot of people think, well, there's something I've got to do to have God forgive me. There's something I've got to do to earn God's favor, God's e gift of eternal life. But folks, it's impossible because the price is too high. Listen to the psalmist. This is back in the Old Testament days, but Psalm 49, verse 6 through 9, he says they, and he's talking about people who, who refuse to acknowledge God. He says, they trust in their wealth and they boast of great riches, yet they cannot ransom themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. They can't redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily, for no one can ever pay enough. There's not enough things that you and I can do to ever make God want, us to want to forgive us. Folks, the price for your freedom has already been paid. All you have to do is accept Jesus Christ into your life and follow Him. Uh, you're already free because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. So, Jesus took my punishment on the cross. That's called substitution. Jesus bought my freedom at the cross. That's called redemption. And then a third incredible benefit of Jesus' death is the word reconciliation. 
That means he restored my relationship to God. Reconciliation is a key word in Scripture. It means, you know, here are two parties that are separated because of conflict, and they're being brought together. That's what it means to be reconciled. There can be reconciliation between nations, between governments, between people, and and so forth. We, We were apart from each other for a variety of reasons, and now we're being put back together. You know, whenever something happens, whenever I do something, let me just be honest here, whenever I do something that breaks the relationship with my wife, uh, there's a distance that happens. You just know it, you know. Uh, You could be in the same room and you just sense that distance. You could be in the same bed and there's just a distance that's there. What needs to happen is reconciliation. Something needs to bring us back together. Well, that's the picture in this word. And the truth is that most people in this world feel distance from God. Um, They don't feel God is close. They think that he's up there somewhere watching from a distance and uh, that he's not involved in their life. They think, man, God is a million miles away. Well, if you feel that God is a million miles away, let me ask the question, who moved? It wasn't God. It was you that moved. You chose to go your own path, to go your own direction. The Bible says that sin separates us from God. That's alienation. That problem, that heart disease that we've got. But here's the neat thing. God doesn't wait for us to take the initiative to come back to Him. He doesn't sit around and say, well, you know what, He's blown it and He's walked off. I'm just going to wait around and see what he, if He'll come back. No, the Bible says that God says, I'm going to take the initiative to restore that relationship that was broke. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to Him. How? Through the blood of Christ. In other words, God took the initiative. Uh, One of the most amazing truths in Bible is this. God wants to be your friend. He doesn't want you to be his servant. He doesn't want you to be his slave. He wants you to, as a friend. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, Our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies. Now, how does that work? Well, Jesus Christ became the mediator. You know what mediators do. They come and they gather two parties that are at odds with one another and they sit down and they try to work to bring them back together, to bring agreement there. And the Bible tells us that God is on one side and you and I are on the other side and Jesus Christ is in the middle as our mediator. Here he is, Jesus Christ, God and man. And he's mediating, he's drawing us back together. You see, when Jesus was on the cross, one thing that he did He took your place. And when he was on that cross, another thing that he did, he bought your freedom. And a third thing that he did was to restore that relationship to God by saying, you know what, I'm going to be the bridge builder between you and God. I'm going to put you back into a right relationship with God. I'm going to deal with that alienation problem that's been going on. One of the symbols of our faith that... um, we use to celebrate this new relationship, the fact that our sins are forgiven, is what we call the Lord's Supper. And we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper right now together. It's a symbol of Jesus giving His life for us. But folks, partaking in the Lord's Supper doesn't mean anything to anybody unless you have accepted that gift of relationship with God that Jesus Christ is making available to you. You know, to participate in the Lord's Supper and not possess eternal life is really counterproductive. Uh, It's saying, I'm going to take this symbol, but I don't want the reality. So if you've never asked Jesus Christ to accept you into His family, Man, you ought to do that. You can do that this morning, right now. In fact, I'm going to pray right now. And, and you can ask Him to come into your life and change your heart. And He'll do that. He'll put you into a relationship with Him so that then this symbol really becomes reality in your life. So let's bow for, for a moment of prayer. And if you've never opened up your heart to Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that right now. You know, it doesn't matter what you say. What matters is the direction of your heart that says, I want to accept, Jesus, what you have done for me. So just in your heart, say something like this. Say, dear God, 
I know I've made lots of mistakes. I know that, man, I feel distance from you. And I want to get close to you and to know you. I thank you so much for loving me and loving me enough to send Jesus Christ to die, to take my place, to die for everything that I've done that was wrong. Thank you for your amazing love. I ask you now to come into my life and give me a new heart. Take away the guilt, take away the worry, the confusion, the loneliness, the compulsions, and begin to build in me a new life, the life that you intended me to live. Thank you for taking my punishment, for buying my freedom. Thank you that you can restore my relationship with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll take that cup, and if you need a cup, hold your hand up real quick. And Steve's got some back here. If you need a Lord's Supper cup. And uh, for those of you at home, go grab a piece of bread and some juice. And uh, let's celebrate the, the, the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Uh, these fancy cups that we've got, you've got two layers there, so be sure and grab the correct layer, okay? Uh, the top layer, the top tab, opens up to the bread. Scripture tells us that on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this. And as you do, remember me. In other words, this is a memory aid to remind us so that we might remember the fact that Jesus loved us enough to die for us. He says, I would rather die than live without you. He died that we might have life. And so he says, take this and eat it. And as you do, remember me. So as you eat this, would you just say in your heart, Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me that much. And if you'll open the next tab there. It's not easy to do, is it? There we go. It says on the night that, um, again, that after he had passed out the bread, it says he took the cup and he said, this blood of the grape represents my blood, which is poured out for you. He says, I do this because I love you. What I want you to know when we take of this cup, we need to be reminded how much he loves us. There is no man, no woman on this earth that loves you more than Jesus Christ. So as you take of this cup, would you just simply pray, thank you for loving me. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for um, giving us this simple reminder, uh, just a simple tool to remember that you have given your all for us. We're so grateful for that. Um, it, it solves those heart diseases in our lives, and we say thank you. So in your name we pray, amen. So there is a, a fourth benefit that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ, and that's the word rebirth. He gave me a new identity. Um, are, are there some things in your past that you wish that weren't there that you could go back and erase? I mean, I know there are things in my past that I wish weren't there and all. Uh, try this, okay? 
Go on the internet this week and type in the words, changing my identity. You're going to be amazed like I was that when you type in those words in a search engine, changing my identity, I got 672 million links to changing my identity. What is it about our world that we're so caught up in identity, discovering our identity, changing our identity, losing our identity or whatever? You know, our culture really defines identity at at four basic levels. First of all, uh, level one is what I do. That is our careers. Second, what I own. That's what I my possessions. Third, what we know. That's our education. And fourth, how we look. That's our appearance. But folks, our identity is much deeper than that. You know, at its core, our identity is rooted at a very spiritual level. And yet the best that our world can offer in, in, you know, changing our identity is we can kind of have an extreme makeover or something like that. That's about it. But the change that Christ offers is so radical and so profound that the Bible actually says we're becoming a new person. You experience that when you ask Jesus Christ into your life. It's a new birth, a new beginning. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 says this, that Christ saved us not based on the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. So the moment that you trust Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, there is a spiritual transaction that takes place, and everything changes. And folks, that's a matter of faith, not not sight. I mean, you're not going to, suddenly your face is going to look different. When you look in the mirror, it's going to be the same face that's there, okay? Uh, Your personality is probably going to be a little bit the same as well. Uh, But what does happen is a spiritual metamorphosis. Uh, Let me ask you a real theological question here, okay? Can a butterfly go back into the cocoon and become a caterpillar again? Well, no, of course not. I mean, that's not possible. Well, when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, when you become a believer, you're like that butterfly, okay? You come out of your cocoon. A butterfly is what it is. It's always a butterfly. And it is true with you. When you become a believer in Christ... That's what you are. Now, it may take some time for you to come out of your cocoon and learn how to spiritually fly, but you are what you are. You are a new creation. And I'm not talking here about positive thinking. I mean, positive thinking would be, uh, you know, that I'm just going to think positive thoughts. That would be like the caterpillar, you know, deciding to think positive thoughts and glue some wings on and try to fly. It's not going to happen. God gives us a new nature when we become a Christian. And and so reminding yourself of who you are in Jesus Christ is truthful thinking and not just merely positive thinking. It's truthful thinking. Folks, the greatest step of faith that you can take in life is to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and to believe what God says about who Jesus Christ is. And the second greatest step that you can take in your faith is to believe what God says about who you are. He says you're a new creation. You know what? That's pictured in another one of our ordinances, and that's baptism. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. Paul writes and he says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in a new life. And and folks, we walk in a new life, but that's just not any new life. No, it's the life of Jesus Christ that's living in us. Galatians 2 and verse 20 says, My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, But Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly life by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying it's Christ who's living in me. His life, a true life, a wonderful life is found in him. And and Jesus Christ is living in us. So when you become a Christian, you have his life in you. And your life is in him. Folks, that solves the confusion. 
that's in your life, about your purpose, your meaning, your, your goal in life. And you know what? Baptism is an outward symbol of that interchange that takes place. If you've never been baptized, I would encourage you to do that. Talk to me today before you leave about following in baptism. Friends, <clears throat> this, excuse me, <clears throat> this is the greatest news in the whole world. This is news that you can only find in God's Word, that Jesus took my punishment. He was my replacement, my substitute. Jesus bought my freedom. That's redemption. Jesus restored my relationship with Christ. That's reconciliation. And Jesus gives me a whole new identity, and He wipes out all the aimlessness and the purposelessness and the the wandering in life. He wipes out all those things I've ever done wrong, and He lets me start over, and that's rebirth. And then finally, the fifth thing that we get from the cross of Jesus Christ is what's called repudiation. That is, He defeated death. In fact, He defeated both the death, both death and the devil. Look at 1 John 3, 8. But the Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. See, that's why Jesus came to this earth, to destroy the devil's work. Now, what is the devil's work? Well, messing up your heart, that's one of the things he does. Filling it with worry and filling it with with guilt and with resentment and filling it with anger and filling it with fear and filling it with confusion and helping you you to feel worthless and helpless and hopeless and aimless in life. Where do you think that fear comes from? It doesn't come from God. It comes from Satan. Fear is Satan's biggest tool that he uses in your life. Fear doesn't come from God. In fact, the Bible says there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. So when you're afraid, that's not from God. You know, there is no fear in love, and God is love. And you know what the number one fear, the Bible tells us, the number one fear that Satan uses in our life? It's the fear of death. The fear of death. Um, You know, the acid test of your faith, of your religion, of your worldview, uh, of your philosophy of life is not how you act at weddings or birthday parties or uh, dedications or, or, or graduations or anything like that. All the happy times. That's not the acid test of your worldview. The acid test of what you believe is how do you react at the funerals of life? You know, as a pastor, I've been in a lot of funerals, and, and I have witnessed the difference between those who have hope and those who don't have hope in life. Uh, those with no hope, who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who don't know God, you can look in their eyes and you can see the terror that's there over the loss of their loved one and what might be waiting on the other side. I've seen the difference that having Jesus Christ makes in the eyes of people at at funerals. You know, the fact, and don't get me wrong, the fact is that Christians do grieve. You know, we, we have mixed emotions. No, we don't grieve for our lost loved one. We grieve for ourselves, but we grieve with hope. We grieve because, you know, we can't, we know we're not going to see them again until heaven, but we rejoice because we will see them again in heaven. Uh, We certainly don't grieve for those people who are gone and uh, to be with the Lord because they're in a great place, a better place, a place that we're all designed to be in one day. And honestly, I don't know about you, but I'm ready to get there, okay? Uh, I'm kind of tired of all the problems of this world. You know, the rapes and the wars and the violence and the confusion and the corruption, all the diseases. This is a broken planet. We weren't meant to live here forever. Paul says this in Colossians 2.15, In this way, Christ disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. That's talking about Satan and all of his his henchmen, okay? Folks, I am not afraid of the devil. I mean, after all, the Bible says, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Look with me at at Hebrews 2.14 here on the screen. um, 14 and 15, it says, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, Jesus also became flesh and blood by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying, listen to this, could he break the power of the devil who has the power of death. 
Only in this way could he deliver those who lived all their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. He's broken the power of Satan. I'm not afraid to die. Folks, why? Because I know where I'm going. And when you know where you're going and you know who's there and you're a friend of God, you're not afraid to meet God when you die. I've been a friend of God for almost 73 years. He's my friend. I talked to him this morning, and here's the good news. You can be a friend of God as well. You can be close to God. You know, it's not something that God's got some kind of special relationship that only pastors and missionaries can have, and everybody else you just kind of wander on your own. No, every one of us can be close to God. And another thing I wanted to mention, you are not ready to live until you're ready to die. In fact, you're not living, you're just existing until you're ready to die. Only a fool would go through life unprepared for something that you know is inevitably going to happen. Now, you may not want to talk about death, but the reality is we all die. So why not be prepared? Why not be prepared? You become a friend of God so that death is no big deal anymore, okay? You're not scared. You're going to be with a friend, your heavenly Father. The message paraphrase put it this way in Romans chapter 6 and verse 9. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal of the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. Isn't that tremendous? It's not that scary anymore, you know. It's neutralized Satan's only tool, the fear of death. What I want you to realize is that Easter caught Satan by surprise. He didn't know that was coming. Here's the point. These five things, when you understand these five things about the cross, <clears throat> instead of, 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 you know, being... Uh, feeling guilty and, and under the, the, uh, you know, the condemnation of the slavery of, of those compulsions and feel, instead of feeling alienated and confused and being filled with worry, the cross says five things about you. The Bible tells us that you are valuable, you are lovable, you are forgivable, you are usable, and you're capable to carry out God's purpose in your life. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ that took care of all the problems that we face in life. It takes care of our, our guilt. It takes care of our alienation. It takes care of our compulsions. It takes care of, of the f- confusion that we have in life. And it takes care of the worry. It's all because you chose, even before the world was created, to die for us, to give to us all those gifts of being one with you through Jesus Christ. My prayer is that anybody who's listened to this message knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that they belong to you, that you are their friend. They have trusted in you and they are relying on you for that gift of eternal life. Thank you for all you do for us. That in you we have the solution to this broken world that we live in. In your name we pray. Amen.